My name is Adam, one of the pastors here as well. Welcome friends, visitors, guests. Hope you'll join me pulling out your Bible. We'll be back in our study of the Gospel of Luke. You'll want your own Bible. Ushers are coming now. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get into the Word together. You'll want that Bible open to Luke chapter 9. On Friday morning, I drove out to the airport with a car full of teenagers one of whom was my daughter, Bridget, and I dropped these teenagers off. Happy Father's Day to me uh, at the airport. And they, and, they, and they flew off to South Korea to serve our church. 27 high school kids from our church. How cool is that? They're in Korea. Now, Pastor Jeff, our student ministry pastor, bless his heart, he told the kids, you have to be at the airport at 3.59 in the morning. Have you ever had your cell phone alarm go off after two hours of sleep at 3.15 in the morning when you feel like different kinds of emotions like, I want to destroy that machinery or I want to throw up. I felt all those emotions. And then I stood at the airport with 15 other parents and I was like, do you want to throw up? And she was like, I want to throw up. We all wanted to throw up because we were sick. But we sent our kids off to Korea and I want you to pray for them. 27 high school students, seven adult leaders in South Korea representing our church, serving at a place called Holt Ilsan, which is an orphanage primarily for adult orphans who have everything from minor to very severe forms of disability who were not able to be adopted, and this place is their community. And our kids go and they serve, they share the love of Christ, they get blessed to interact with all these residents. And we, we send our students to Korea like this because we, we care about the two hands of the gospel. Remember we talked last week, gospel word and gospel deed held together in this beautiful harmony. Not just gospel proclamation, but gospel demonstration. And so I'm asking the church, will you write this down? Please pray for this trip. 27 students. Some of them need to be renewed in their relationship with Christ. Some of them need to be encouraged. Some of them are very early on in a journey of faith. Some of them are not Christians yet. Imagine that. Those ones who are not Christians do not stand a chance. All right, they're coming home in love with Jesus. How could you not? but partly because you're going to pray for them, and so pray for their safety. Thank you for that. Will you look with me now at Luke chapter 9? Our text today is extremely deep. And last Sunday, I made a claim about Jesus that I did not fully explain, nor did I fully demonstrate from Scripture. I wonder if you remember this statement. It was a big one. Here's what I said. Jesus has a strategy for how to spread the good news of the kingdom throughout the whole world. And that strategy involves the participation of everyone who would call themselves a follower of Jesus. Do you remember when I said that? Statement? You're like... I have no clue. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I said that. That's a big claim. That is a massive claim. And maybe you thought, wow, Jesus has a strategy. He wants to spread the whole gospel, and he is going to do it 
through the participation of every single person who would call themselves a disciple. What a claim. I made it, I partially showed it, but not fully, and this morning I'm going to fully demonstrate that, or more accurately, Jesus is going to fully prove that statement in what he's going to do next, because now in chapter 9, starting in verse 18, if you look at your own Bible, what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to enter into an extended dialogue about discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What is Required, And what we're going to discover this morning is that Jesus is after women and men who have extremely deep faith and convictions about the identity of Christ. Convictions that are so deep that they would give up anything and everything that the world has to offer in order to join Jesus on his global mission. He has a strategy. Let's learn about it today. Luke 9, starting in verse 18. I'll read our whole passage. Here's what happened next. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one. We'll talk about it. (laughs) Saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Amazing. I think I can summarize this passage with three statements. Number one, Jesus is totally unique. Number two, Jesus is absolutely essential. And number three, Jesus is infinitely essential. Worthy. Jesus is totally unique. That's paragraph one. Do you see it there, verses 18 and 20? Please look at your own Bible. You have to see this. He's totally unique. There's no one else like him. That's what the word unique means. (laughs) Jesus is absolutely essential. That's paragraph two, verses 21 and 22. 
He's essential, not just his life, not just his presence as Messiah, but his passion, his death, and his resurrection are essential. And finally, Jesus is infinitely worthy. That's paragraph 3, verses 23 to 27. There's something about Jesus that is so worthy that when you realize it, you would be willing to give up everything to follow him. Imagine the impact in our world of a community of disciples who believed each of those three statements with every fiber of their being. So that's the summary. Now let's see whether I can prove it from these verses. We begin with statement number one, Jesus is totally unique. He's unlike anyone else. He's the only one of his kind. He's absolutely special. That's what unique means. Where do I get it? Well, I'm getting it there from 18 and 20 where you notice Jesus is praying. His disciples are there near him. And after he's prayed for a while, he turns to them to probe them with questions about his identity. And Luke very intentionally, if you look at verse 18, he very intentionally links together the praying of Jesus with the probing of Jesus. He's praying and something stirs within him and he realizes, I have to probe now. I need to make sure they know who I really am. Have you ever been praying and suddenly you feel you're being prompted with something you have to do? You're just praying. Usually for me, it's I have to go apologize to someone for something dumb I did. I'm praying. I'm like, oh, I have to go tell that person I'm a a dork. I shouldn't have said that, you know. But do you ever have that? You're praying and you feel this prompting. I've got to respond. I have to talk to someone. I have to do something. I think that's what's happening to Jesus. He's praying and he's seeking the Father. He's listening to God's heart. He's listening to God's strategy and mission. And he immediately turns to the disciples. And this is the second time in the Gospel of Luke that the praying of Christ has turned into a significant moment of discipleship. I don't know if you remember in Luke 6, we saw Jesus up on a mountain praying all night. And when he came down, he walked through a crowd of 50 to 100 disciples and he chose 12 whom he called apostles. When did he do that? After praying all night. When did Jesus turn to his disciples and say, who do the people say that I am? He did it after he'd been praying. How interesting. He said, who do the people say that I am? He wanted to know, what are the rumors? What's public opinion out there? And they answered, and they said, well, there's all kinds of stuff floating around. And it's very interesting. It's the same rumors that Herod had heard about back verses 8 and 9. Some people say you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're one of the prophets. That's public opinion about Jesus, that he was merely a prophet. And prophets are perfectly fine as prophets go. In fact, prophets of God are important. They play a significant role in the unfolding redemption of God. But the reader knows, and Peter is about to say, that Jesus is so much more than merely a prophet. Prophets predict the kingdom of God. Jesus said, 
I've come to actually bring the kingdom of God. Prophets point to something. They point to the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I am the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is totally unique. Totally unique. Amen? Who says that? No one in the history of the world has ever said anything remotely close to that. No one. This is why Jesus then turns the question deeper. Yeah, I, I care about what people think, but here's what I really care about. What do you think? Who do you say that I am? As if to say, you can't really draft on public opinion. Eventually, and I think this would be his word for us, 2019, eventually you get to the place where you no longer borrow from stuff you've heard someone else say. You no longer confess things only as a part of a crowd who are saying things that you're not sure you truly believe, eventually you get to a place where Jesus turns to you with his loving finger pointed into the center of your being, and he says, sister, brother, who do you say that I am? This is what really matters. What do you say? Who am I? Who am I? Peter gets it right. Look at verse 20. Peter says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. The the word means you are God's anointed one. You are his special king. You are the savior who has come to redeem the world You're the only Messiah. There's never been a Messiah before you. There will never be another Messiah after you. You are one of a kind. One of a kind. Jesus is totally unique. He's not merely one of many great prophets. Most of the world's religions have a great prophet. Jesus never disclaimed to be a prophet. He's not merely a great teacher of God's word. Most of the major religions have wonderful teachers. Jesus never claimed to be merely a great teacher. Jesus claimed to be something significantly more than any of these categories. There's simply no one else like him. Now, I recognize that in our culture, that kind of language can be abrasive, right? And we live in a pluralistic culture that pounds on us consistently says, hey, it's not cool to talk like that, you know. It's not cool to make exclusive claims like that. It's not very cool. It's not very sensitive. It's not very enlightened to look at other religions, other worldviews, and say that the, the one that you're a part of is unique or special somehow. That's just, that's fallen on, on hard times in our culture. But let me, let me push on that just a little bit. Did you know that every other religion agrees that Jesus made claims that were very unique? Did you know that? All the other religions say, man, Jesus said some stuff that our leader never said. And not only that, our leader would never even think about. 
like forgiveness of sins. Do you know how few worldviews even have a category for the forgiveness of sins? This is unique. I love the way that David Goodwin said it in his book, Christianity, Opium or Truth. I'll put this quote up. It's a great title, by the way. Opium or Truth, Christianity. I'll pick truth personally, all right? But uh, anyway, here's what he said. He was talking about the claim to be a Messiah who comes to forgive sins. And he says, in this, Christ is unique. Of all the great founders and leaders of religions, he's the only one who will come alongside us claiming to be our creator incarnate, come to deal with the problem of the guilt of our sin by means of his sacrifice at Calvary so that we may receive forgiveness and peace with God to ask why we must think that Christ is the only way to God is to miss the point completely. No one else offers to deal with this fundamental problem. Christ is the only one in the running. So how can it be arrogant or narrow-minded to accept from Christ what nobody else offers? Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is totally unique. There's no one else like him. This is why in my life, I have discovered that the Christian testimonies that capture my heart the most are the stories where there comes a point where the person says, there were so many things that happened in my life, amazing people, a community. There were people praying for me, but there came a moment, an all critical moment where I realized there's something about Jesus that's so unique. That was my moment. Do you know how many people, that's a critical part of their testimony. There's something about Jesus. Nabil Qureshi, the famous apologist, Muslim converted to Christianity, he wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, super brilliant. He would get in arguments when he was in college with Christians and he would demolish their faith. And he had all these different people saying things to him, but he said that none of it penetrated my heart until I actually picked up a Bible and I read the gospel accounts and I looked at the person of Jesus and suddenly I realized Jesus is unique. His claims are unique. I, I either have to accept them or I have to write him off as the most wicked person who's ever lived in human history because of the kinds of things that he claimed. Isn't that interesting? He chose truth, not opium, by the way. <laughs> Nancy Piercy, the f- most famous Christian philosopher maybe of our, of our day, brilliant. She walked away from faith, and then as a young woman, she found herself in Switzerland at Labrie with a famous philosopher named Francis Schaeffer. Maybe you've heard of him. And she was there around Christians who were brilliant, talking about worldview and apologetics. And Nancy Piercy was there and she was learning and her mind was being stimulated. But she said, none of that was what got me. What got me was I picked up a Bible and I looked at the person of Jesus and I realized he's totally unique. C.S. Lewis is my favorite. Anybody ever heard of C.S. Lewis? Okay, just checking. You never know. It's the 2000s, so. C.S. Lewis was, he described himself as an aggressive atheist. He said, I, 
He said, I thought religion was the most foolish thing around. Whenever he was forced to sit through a church service, he would giggle. He didn't like the organ music. The pastor would be preaching and he would be snickering out there, you know. He didn't like the big words, atonement and redemption and propitiate. He thought these words were just ridiculous. But he was willing to admit, C.S. Lewis wrote in his, in his biography, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, which is an amazing book. He wrote, I, I have to admit that I was a whirl of contradiction. Even in my, my atheism was a whirl of contradiction. He wrote, and I quote, I maintained that God did not exist. I was also angry with God for not existing. It's like, God, you don't exist and I'm angry at you. We need to go back to step one here, right? And then he wrote, I was also equally angry with him for creating the world. Why should creatures have the burden of existence forced on them without their consent? He chose atheism. Actually, he, he says later, I chose atheism because it satisfied my deepest desire to be left alone. I did not want God involved in my life. Amazing. What happened? Many things happened. He got surprised by joy, the title of his book. He says, from the very early age, I remember feeling this feeling. He describes it as an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever exchange it for all the pleasures of the world. He said, I, I had this uns, unsatisfied desire, and I knew it was something that would never be satisfied by anything that the world had to offer. All the joys of the world were just foretastes that pointed higher or deeper or farther away to some thing or someone who was actually the true quench of this thirst within me. I, I just knew something's missing. And then he, he found himself surrounded by all of these believers, Tolkien and others, whom he called thoroughgoing supernaturalists. <laughs> And he was really annoyed. He's like, why are all the great writers and thinkers around me believers? I don't know what to do with this. But none of that changed. You know what changed C.S. Lewis's heart? He picked up a Bible. And he read the Gospels. And he was a literary critic. He had studied literature his entire life. And as he read the Gospels, he realized this is not mythology. This does not read like mythology. It reads like eyewitness accounts. These people are recording things they saw. And the things that they're recording are inexplicable. This person made claims that you would only claim if you were either mad or extremely wicked or if you were actually the creator of the universe. He wrote in the most famous paragraph of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher 
He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg. I love C.S. Lewis. <laughs> or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. He did not intend to. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is totally unique. Totally unique. Amazing. How about you? Who do you say Jesus is? That's number one. He's unique, but that's not all. He's absolutely essential. You say essential. What an odd word to use to describe Jesus. Where are you getting that? Well, I'm getting it from verse 22. Will you look at it with me? Here's what Jesus said. The son of man must. That is the decisive word. (laughs) That's the word that jumps off the page. Must? The Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, must be killed, and on the third day be raised. Those four things, Jesus says, have to happen. Not might happen, Not should happen, not even will happen. No, Jesus says, they must happen. Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. Verse 22, if you look at it, verse 22 reveals to us the relationship between God and the murder of the Son of Man. And that relationship is that it is not random, it's not an accident, it's not something that caught God off guard. God didn't go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. That ramped up fast. (laughs) No, it's not merely a possibility, one possibility among others. It's not an accident. It's the gospel. And it's a part of the plan of God. The Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and die and be raised. Must. We get this. Fathers, when you use the word must in your parenting, okay, you have a very specific concept in mind when you're using that word. Am I right? Dads, do you feel me? I taught Bridget how to drive. Bridget was behind the wheel of a one-ton killing machine, all right? She was 15 and three-quarters years old. She was driving my vehicle through the streets of Lake Oswego. And here's what I said to her, all right? I said to her, Bridget, before you shift the car out of drive, past neutral, past reverse, and into park, 
you must make sure that the car has come to a complete stop. Okay. <laughs> Note the word must, Bridget. Okay. I need a therapist and a mechanic right now in my life. You must, and I meant by that not maybe, this is ideal, but this has to happen, right? So it is when Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. This is why if you look at your Bible, shift down to verse 51. This is why in just a few moments we'll see Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem. A place that he knows will result in his suffering, rejection, brutal, tortured death and resurrection. I ask you, and that phrase, setting his face, it means to plant your feet, to position yourself so that your face is set like flint. And I would like to ask you, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone look in that direction knowing what awaits them? Because Jesus knew this is a must. This is a must. Jesus is essential. So what is it about his mission that makes it so essential? Why must he suffer? Why must he be rejected? Why must he die? Why must he rise again? There's many reasons. I'll give you three briefly. Here's why he must. Reason number one, because God never breaks his promises. And the Old Testament is one long, beautiful, narrated, gospel-rich promise that a Messiah will come and die for human sin. It's written, and God never breaks his promises. You say, where would I go in the Bible to find promises about Jesus being rejected or suffering or dying or rising from the dead? Where would I go? Go to Psalm 22. Today, go home, read Psalm 22, and you will find phrases like, I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Does that sound familiar? It's right out of the Gospels predicted thousands of years before Psalm 22. Or Psalm 22, dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Does that sound familiar? It's straight out of the Gospels, written thousands of years earlier in Psalm 22. Go to Isaiah 53. Read it. Speaking of the suffering servant, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. And you read on and on and on. And you realize, oh my goodness, God promised this. And God never breaks his promises. Isn't that good news? Hallelujah. 
You say, why would Jesus, why, why Jesus must suffer? Because God promised it. That's reason number one. Here's reason number two. Because it was planned before the foundations of the world. God is eternally wise. He was eternally wise before he built the foundations of what we call reality. And he had a plan. And that plan involved this amazing story of redemption. And so it must happen. It was part of the plan. You say, please show me a verse that proves that. Because that's a, that's a claim. Okay, how about Acts? Don't turn there. Just look at the screen. Acts 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, that's the Herod we've been learning about, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Oh, think about that. That's saying that the four perpetrators of the, of the murder of Jesus, the, the Greeks, the Jews, Herod, Pontius Pilate, they were all working totally in cooperation with the eternal plan of God because God had a sovereign, wise vision and plan to bring about the beauty of redemption. And that plan involved a Messiah who would, who would one day come and walk among us and live a perfect life and go to the cross and die a sacrificial death. And now you understand why Jesus would, after praying, turn to his disciples and say, do you know who I am? Let me tell you something. I'm on a mission. I must go to Jerusalem. Amazing. But there's another reason in and the reason is that because that plan is put in place for an ultimate and final purpose, and that purpose is forgiveness of sins and new life. It's not, just a, it's not just a random death. Random death saves no one, right? We know this. A random death has no power to save, but when it's, an, when it's a death that was part of the plan of God that was for the purpose of bringing about salvation, Jesus at the, at the Lord's Supper, at his final supper, he was instituting communion, the Lord's Supper, and he, what did he say about his blood? He used this phrase, which we'll, which we'll remember in a moment. He said, this blood, there's the new covenant in my blood. That new covenant, Jeremiah talked about it, the new covenant is about having your heart of stone removed and a new heart that replaces it, having your sins forgiven, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and finally being able to walk with God. Jesus said, this is why my, my blood will be shed, so that you can have those things, a new heart, forgiveness, relationship with God. Jesus says, now you know why. I must suffer. I must die. I must be raised. Amazing. There's no gospel without must. There's no gospel. I've heard, let me just press this real quick. I've heard people say, oh, gosh, this, the idea of God being sovereign, it's, man, I feel like I have to explain that. I have to get God off the hook. That's, that's a blight on God's character. God's not apologizing for being actually in control of the universe that he created. 
He's not apologizing for that. Sovereignty is good news. It's like the glue that holds this whole story together. It's so beautiful. And imagine a follower of Jesus who recognizes, Jesus, this was a part of the plan from the before the foundations of the world. So powerful. I believe that. I want to follow you. You're worth following. Amen? Isn't that good news? Good news. Okay, but now, now you know why Jesus almost, it's odd, but he almost seems to scold Peter for getting the right answer. Isn't that interesting? Look back with me, verse 21. Peter says, you're the Christ of God. And Jesus says, you're right. Now stop talking. (laughs) Be quiet, all right? Right answer, now. Don't talk anymore. Why would he do that? You get the right answer, usually the teacher says, Good job, shot it from the mountaintops. What's two plus two? Four. Be quiet. Stop talking. <laughs> What's Jesus doing? He's saying sometimes you, you say the right, right words, but you don't yet have all the meaning that you need. And so I don't want you to talk yet until I have backfilled that statement with all of this truth that you're going to need. Because you have, you have no idea how much this is going to cost me. And you don't really have an idea how much this is going to cost you. It's very costly. You don't believe me? Look again at verses 23 to 26. Think of how costly this is. It's, it's indescribable. Look what Jesus demands of a follower to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to give up the world, to say there's nothing in this world that I would take over Jesus. I would sacrifice anything and everything the world could offer. Who in their right mind would want to follow Jesus? Only the person who has experienced the miracle of having their eyes opened to how infinitely worthy he is. He's... Jesus is not just unique. He's not just essential. There's more. Jesus is infinitely worthy. Friends, can I tell you something? You will never find anything in this world that will be more valuable to you. God's calling. Tell us. He's calling to say, have them write this down. (laughs) See that or he's saying, stop talking now and pray. No, he's saying, you will never find anything in this world that will be more valuable to you than to know Jesus Christ. Nothing. He's infinitely worthy. Did you know that when Jesus said, um, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross? So that phrase would have just dropped like a bomb on them. Because, first of all, you have to realize, when Jesus said this, the disciples did not know that he was going to be crucified yet. Think how weird that would have been. They were sitting there. They don't, we know, we're the, the reader knows Jesus is on his way to a cross. They didn't know that. 
Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross. They were like, cross? How did we get to the cross here? And not only that, that idea of taking up your cross, it was, everyone knew what that meant. It was this, it was a part of the crucifixion where the Romans would ask a a person who was going to be crucified, they had to carry their own crossbar. So if you were in your home looking out the window and you saw someone that you knew from the village with some Roman soldiers and they're carrying a crossbar, you know, I don't think we're ever going to see him again. That's a one-way trip, right? And now Jesus says, this is what I'm asking of you if you'll be my follower. It's almost like you're on a one-way trip out of this world. You live your life knowing this world, as amazing as it is, if anything in this world becomes more important to me than Jesus, it's, it's something that, it, that needs to die. I need to deny it. And Luke even adds the word daily just to drive it home. Like this is something that will have to happen in your life daily. So profound, so deep. So amazing. Can I show you the key to understanding verse 23 and 24 and 25? You look at your Bible. The thing I want you to notice is that there's actually, there are two selves in this verse. When Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, deny self, there are two selves there. There's a, a denying self and a denied self. There's a crucifying self and a crucified self. It's as if Jesus is saying, what I'm talking about here is that a miracle happens where a a new creation is born, a new person in Christ, a new self. So there's a new self and there's an old self. And the new self is the one who has to deny the old self, right? Because my old self would never deny himself because my old self really likes my old self, right? So it has to be someone else, another self who does the denying, and that, new, that self is a new self. A miracle has happened. You've been born again, recreated in Christ. And now your new self looks at your old self and says, Christ is so valuable that if my old self wants to grab after anything over Christ, I I need to deny that self. I need to say, you are dead to me because Jesus is so valuable. How great. On Friday, a brother from our church came to have coffee with me, and he said, I need to talk to you about something really important. I didn't know what he wanted to talk about. I never know what's coming. It's like, dude, the coffee is so hot here. Whatever it's going to be, you know. I don't know what people are going to talk to me about. But uh, he came and he was like, he sat down and he was like, I need you to help me apply Galatians 2.20 in my life. And I was like, thank you, God. These are the conversations I love to have. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I live in this body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. This brother said, can you help me? 
can you give me like the 12 steps for how to live this out? I was like, I don't know if there's 12, but there's probably a couple, right? How would you do it? You would do it. You would say, wait a minute, there's a new self. That new self knows some things. That new self knows that even if I could gain the whole world, which probably can't happen, verse 25, even if I could, I would never exchange it for Jesus. So any temptation to gain the world, I'm going to put that self to bed. The new self knows Jesus is so infinitely worthy that if there's any part of my old self that's ashamed of Jesus, did you see that verse 26, if anyone is ashamed of me, it's such a strong word. I think Jesus is saying being ashamed of Jesus means you're embarrassed. You want distance from Christ. You, you don't want to be associated with Christ. And that's a temptation for the old self. And the new self says, ah, I'm proud of Christ. I'm proud of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Old self, I deny you. I deny you. And the new self recognizes there's a day coming. Verse 27, will you look at your Bible? There's a day coming. Excuse me, verse 26. It's a glorious day. There's a lot of glory in verse 26. There's glory of the Father and the Son and millions of angels. That's a lot of glory. And on that glorious day, Jesus will not force anyone to be with him who didn't want to be with him. People who are ashamed of Jesus. The new self says, I believe that. That day's coming, and I want to be counted among those for whom Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Well done. River West, can you imagine the impact of a community that believes these three things. Jesus is unique. Jesus is essential. And Jesus is infinitely worthy. I believe that, Jesus. Amazing. I think Jesus stands back and says, now I've got something to work with. <laughs> Let's get going. Let's get going. I'm going to pray about that, and we'll go to the table. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, it's a lot to take in. There's so much truth in this text. Big ideas. I pray that you'd help us. As we go to the table now, as we find nourishment in Jesus, will you increase our faith? Show us again these truths about his uniqueness, his essentialness, his beauty and worth. May we believe it with all of our hearts. May we draw our strength from it, God. And it is our prayer this morning that our church would grow in deeper conviction, deeper love, deeper joy in Jesus because we want to be used by you, God, in this world. And so we worship you, we praise you, we thank you, and we say it together as a community of faith.
In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Amen.